Good morning. Today's reading comes from the book of James, chapter 4, verse 13, through chapter 5, verse 6. And please stand for the reading. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter, and you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated. Good morning. My name is Josh Habman. I'm the executive pastor here. And wasn't it nice of great uh, of Brooks to go on vacation when there was this very simple passage for us to deal with this morning? So kind of him. Uh, it is good that he gets a break because he needs a break. Not just those scheduled. Um, I'm sorry, not just those once-in-a-while things like uh, sabbatical, but weekly, uh, we all need breaks. We all need Sabbath. And when we have friends who can step up and give us those breaks, those rests, that's a good thing. This morning we're going to talk about the friend that Jesus is and the friend that God wants to be to us. And we're actually going to reference a passage, uh, a piece of the passage that Brooks talked on Last week, when he talked about what it means to be God's friend versus the world's friend, we'll get there in a minute. This is a series on James, for those of you who have not been here, and it is called Faith Works. And we do want to emphasize works because James emphasizes works, but we also want to be clear that when James emphasizes works, he is not saying, do these good things so that you will be saved. And I know that Brooks has said that, and I've said that in this series, so we've said it multiple times, but we want to be very clear. The Bible does not say, James does not say, grace does not say, do good works so that you will be saved. But James and the Bible and grace, we all do say that if you have been saved, then there ought to be things in your life that are evidence of that salvation. And so when we say faith works, that's what we're talking about. Uh, We are going to go, like I said, back to James 4.4 for a minute because we need to understand what James is about to do at the end of chapter 4 and the start of verse 5. You might have noticed when Linda was reading that there were two phrases, uh, two sections, passages of Scripture that started with, come now. Come now, consider your pride and your arrogance, it says at one point, and then come now, consider your idols of wealth, it says again after that. And so James is going to say, hey, pay attention to this. Hey, pay attention to this other thing. Why is he doing that? Because back in chapter 4, verse 4, he asked this question. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Don't you know that if you're a friend with the world, you are making yourself an enemy of God? There's 
only one relationship that you can have with God. It is either friend or enemy. And if you are friend with the world, then you're not friend with God. And so James goes on then in chapter 4, in the first part of chapter 4, to talk about how this applies to our relationships with one another. And Brooks talked about that last week. He talked about our quarrels that we have among each other within the body of Christ. He talked about the quarrels we have even with God about what we need and what we think we need personally. But then James, in this passage, is going to give us some examples of what it looks like to forget God ultimately, to just forget he even exists, to push him off to the side. And he's going to do that with examples of pride and with examples of wealth. And so we don't want to forget God. In fact, we hope that we don't do anything but treat him as our friend. And that's, that's where we're going to end up today, is talking about treating God as our friend, because that's what the passage is going to lead us to, this idea that we have temptations to forget God. And James is going to pull out what it looks like in our pride and our arrogance and what it looks like in our wealth. Here are temptations, he says, that you're going to face. Come now, he says. Isn't this the case? That even though you're a believer, because James is writing to believers, even though you're a believer, isn't it true that there are times when you are tempted to forget God because you're proud, because you're arrogant? And isn't it true that you are tempted to forget God because you have wealth, you've accumulated wealth? He's writing to people in the church who have means. Isn't that true, he says? And aren't there also these then opportunities to know God? So if those are temptations to forget God, he's also going to give us some opportunities to know God, both his will and his treasure. And then finally, he's going to carry it further. Because if enmity with God is forgetting God and being a friend of the world, right? we ought to also know what it looks like to be a friend of God. And so what does it mean to be a friend of God, to befriend him? And he's going to point us to humility and dependence. As we get started, let's pray this morning that he would lead us in that direction to humility and dependence. Heavenly Father, I praise you that you have given us your word, and I praise you that we do not have to do good works to know you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you save us while we are still sinners, and that you call us to love you, and it is your grace. Lord, you give us more grace that we might do something with that salvation while we live on this earth that we might go and produce fruit in keeping with righteousness, that we can be a a participation, Lord, in bringing others to you and bringing others to salvation. That's your desire for us. I praise you, Lord, that we can do that. Help us to see this truth in your word today, I pray in your name. Amen. James 4, starting in verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town, Spend a year there, trade, make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. How many of you in the last few days have had this sort of conversation with someone that's important to you? Where you've said something like, next year we're doing this. Or later this summer our plan is to go here or to go there. Anybody have a conversation like this? This is a pretty common conversation, right? Uh, I hope to go to school in the fall, or my plan is to go to this college next year. My plan is to graduate in a year. Here are my plans. Here's what I'm doing. We all talk like this. That's not a problem. Planning is not a problem. My family of seven, we have five kids, took a 5,000-mile road trip earlier this summer. That was a year plus in planning, right? You don't just drive off for 5,000 miles with five kids. It doesn't happen that way if you want to bring them all back, right? (laughs) So... There was planning involved. It took a while. 
We absolutely spent time planning. The problem isn't planning. The problem is pride. The problem is when your plans go from, hey, let's think about doing this thing or that thing to, I am going to make this happen. I am going to will this into existence. I am going to say, this is what's going to happen. It's going to look this way. And God, you better not touch it. I'm going to this college. God, you don't have any say over it. That's my thing. I'm going to marry this person, God. It's not really in your sphere of influence at all, Lord Jesus. This is my thing. So that's where the problem comes. It's from pride that we say, I alone know what's best for me. And God, through James, is telling us that's impossible. You can't know what's best for you. You're a mist. Ecclesiastes says a breath, right? Jesus even talks about us being like flowers that are blooming for a day and then feeding the fire the next day. We are here just for a moment. It's impossible for us to know what's best for us. There's no way. We do not have the scope or understanding of the way the world works, and yet that's what we try to do. And so our pride, our arrogance, it tempts us to forget God by putting us in his place where we get to make all of the decisions for us. And if you wonder whether or not this is something you struggle with, ask yourself, have I ever been mad at God because things didn't turn out the way I wanted them to? The answer is yes. Right? You don't even have to raise your hands. We all have things. We have all done this where we have wanted something terribly. We want something to go a certain way and good things. We've wanted good things for our family members and for our kids that didn't happen. And we said, God, why didn't you do it the way I wanted? I had a good vision for the way it should go. Why didn't you do it that way? And James is saying, come now. Isn't it true that you're only here for a day and gone tomorrow? Don't you recognize that you don't understand everything that is going on and God does? So don't forget him. Don't put yourself in his place. Trust him. And we'll get there. We'll get there. He also says, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are nothing. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. You may not think of yourselves as rich. Um, Compared to your neighbors, you may not be rich. But it is true that on a global scale, Americans are some of the richest people alive ever in the history and the existence of mankind. We are some of the richest people ever. The average American income is around $50,000. In China and India, two of the most populous countries on earth, it's way less than half of that. In China, it's more like $20,000. In India, it's more like $5,000, average annual income. So whether or not you feel like you're rich or not, you're rich. You have a lot. And now you might think, I'm not this rich, right? I'm not so rich that I've laid up for myself treasure in the last days. And yet, and yet most of you are trying to be wise. I know because I've talked to many of you about this, right? We've had conversations. You talk to other people at church. How do I make wise investments? How do I plan well for the future? Not unlike what James just talked about in making plans, right? It's, this is a specific plan. This is a financial plan. I want to make sure that I have enough to be comfortable in retirement whenever. And so you store up treasure. And eventually the treasure becomes 
God. And Jesus says this very clearly. He says you can't serve both God and money. You're going to pick one or the other. And James is saying it here too. Either you're going to treat this wealth that you have like it's a gift from God and you're going to use it to glorify him. You're going to use it to bring others to him. You're going to use it to bless other people or it's going to become an idol. And again, the question is, well, where's that line, right? Just like it's not wrong to plan, it's not wrong to have resources. It's not wrong to provide for your family. That's a great thing. That's a wise thing. But where does it become an idol? Well, when it tempts us to forget God and put money in his place, where it tempts us to say, I don't really need God because my bank account is healthy. Right? It becomes an idol. And so James says, come now. Isn't this the case? And remember, he is writing to Christians. If you are not a Christian, if you don't have God in your life, if you don't believe that God exists, absolutely plan and store up wealth because those are the only tools available to you. I understand that. But if you believe that God made you, if you believe that God made the universe, can you also believe that he might have plans that are better than your plans and resources that are better than yours? Or is that a step too far? You're willing to believe that he made the universe, but not that he can manage your money. You're willing to believe that he can create you something from nothing, but he doesn't know what's best for you next year. So don't forget God, James says. Don't forget God. If you have believed in him, and he's writing to believers, if you've believed in him, trust in him. Don't just forget him. In fact, know him. God wants us to do and know his will, and that's going to sound backward to you. Don't we need to know his will before we can do it? Yeah, it's a recursive thing. The more we know, the more we can do, but the more we do, the more we can know. Here's how he puts it in chapter 4. He says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Notice the first phrase, if the Lord wills, we will live. How many of you are familiar with the Lord's Prayer? You guys are familiar with the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Okay, God's will, that's front and forward. Give us today our daily bread. What does that mean? Does that mean just feed us today? Yeah, that means feed us. You know what else it means? It means, Lord, if you will, let me live today. Give me today. How much different would your position on planning and wealth be if you woke up every morning and said, God, thank you for today. If you, if you will, let me live throughout the end of this day and do what you would have me do. And then tomorrow. And then the next day. If the Lord wills, let us live. And then also, let us do some things for you, Lord. But as it is, James says, you're boasting in your arrogance, your pride, your belief that you know what's best for yourself. All such boasting is evil. And then he ends with this verse in this section, which is a difficult verse. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. That's an oppressive verse because we know lots of right things to do that we don't do. And so understand when you read this in James that James knows the gospel. James has already shared the gospel and he is going to keep bringing this idea that you don't need to do good things in order to be saved and that you have salvation just by asking. So when he says this, don't feel burdened by this, but understand that it's pointing you to something. If you know the right thing to do and fail to do it, for you that is sin. And so that's pointing you to this idea that you can know the right thing. God wants you to know the right thing to do. 
I don't know what the right... Why wouldn't God just tell me the right thing to do? How about that? Have you asked yourselves that recently? Why wouldn't God just tell me the right thing to do? If only he had shared something written, some, some sort of form of writing, right? Some sort of message. If he had given us a message telling us what to do, that would be great. And if it were legible, if I could read it, that would be even better. He's given us his word, and he's given us lots of places in his word where he very directly tells us how we can do and know his will. I'm going to give you a list of them. We're not going to spend a lot of time on each of them, but I'm going to go through each of them because I want you to think about how he is telling you to do and know his will. So in Proverbs 3, uh, 5, you, you get this verse, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he'll make your paths straight. This is God telling you what he wants from you. Stop trusting in yourself. Start trusting in me. Stop trusting in your own understanding. Start trusting in mine. That's my will for you, God says. In Romans 12, too, he says, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can test and approve what the will of God is. It's a good, a pleasing, and a perfect will. God wants you to know what it is, so let him transform your mind. Don't be a friend of the world. Be a friend of God, he says. In Micah 6.8, it says, He has told you, God has told us what is good and what he requires of us, and it's this, to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with him. That's what God wants from us. You say, well, justice and mercy and humility, those are really big categories, right? Like, could you get more specific, God? I don't, I don't know about justice, right? That's a huge concept. I can't wrap my head around justice. How about Matthew 28, 19, and 20? Go and make disciples. Do what Jesus did. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that Jesus commands. What does he command? Jesus commands us, the same way that the law commands us, only he fulfills it perfectly. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So when we talk about doing and knowing his will, it is this simple. And it's hard, yes, like walking it out is difficult, but it is this simple. All of these places, and this is just a selection, but all of these places, God is telling us in his word, I want you to know my will. I want you to understand what I would have you do. I don't want you to be proud in your arrogance and doom yourself to death. If you've believed in me, trust in me. 1 Peter 2.15 is a fun one. It says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you would silence the ignorance of foolish people. It does not say, silence ignorance by typing louder on your computer than they typed on theirs. Right? It does not say silence ignorance by telling them how wrong they are. It says silence ignorance by doing good. What that is saying is that when you live a life that is Christ-like because Christ is in you, because you've devoted your life to him, you're trusting in him and not yourself, you're going to do good. And people are going to look at your life and they're going to say, I don't have an argument against that. That's, that's a pleasing thing. I want to do good like that person is doing good. And then finally, Colossians 3.17 says, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so here's where I want to push this out because we often get wrapped up in this idea that knowing God's will means knowing exactly 
who and how and where, right? If I'm going to do God's will, I have to know what he wants me to do at 2, 2.30 on a Thursday. If I'm going to do God's will, I have to somehow know exactly where I need to go to school and exactly who I need to uh, have relationships with, exactly this and exactly that. And Paul says here in Colossians, he says, whatever you do, it doesn't matter what you're doing. You have to do it in the name of the Lord. You ought to be moving in his will constantly. And so there's going to come a time where you have two or maybe even three or four good decisions in front of you. And to do God's will is simply to do good. You could go to a number of possible colleges or jobs. You could move your family in different directions and still be doing good as long as you're seeking to glorify God. So in other words, even when we're trying to know God's will, we can let pride and arrogance slip in because we think, yeah, but I have to get it just right. I have to perfect it. I have to tweak it. And we're trying to pull authority back from God and say, it needs to look exactly like this for me to get it right. And God says, no, you just have to trust me. Think about the apostles. Think about his disciples who followed after him daily. They had a very specific idea of what it would look like to follow Jesus. And they thought that it involved military takeover. They thought for sure that Jesus at some point was going to come into Jerusalem like a conquering king and that they would be princes alongside of him. And Jesus said, hold on. Let's just leave that idea over to the side. That's not exactly what we have in mind. Instead, we're going to give our lives, all of you are going to give your lives and it's going to bring many, many more people into the church. And yeah, I'm going to come back and I am going to be the conquering king. But first, first, let's save as many people as we can. So God wants you to do and know his will. He also wants you to use what he has given you to provide for others. Uh, It says here in chapter 5 of James, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. They're crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He doesn't resist you. Again, I said to you that you may not think of yourself as wealthy. And many of you probably do not have hired workers, right? James is writing very specifically to men and women who own fields and own property and they've hired laborers, people who are going out and mowing their fields. Some of you do this. Some of you have contracted with people to do work for you or you own businesses. And so there's maybe a more direct application there for you. But again, here the principle is God wants to use you to provide for others. He doesn't want wealth to be your idol. He wants you to worship him. But if you're worshiping wealth, what's going to happen is that you're going to sacrifice relationships, people, and also your righteousness. You're going to sacrifice those things because you want the wealth more. What tempts you to keep money back from somebody to whom it is owed? It's the idea that you need it more than they do, right? And God is saying you don't need it more than they do. They need it. I gave it to you so that you would give it to them. So give it to them. This is also an act of trust. But you can do this. And I know that you can do this specifically, that Grace Community Church can do this, because this is a generous congregation. When COVID started, uh, Grace asked for donations from the congregation for people who would be in need because of COVID, people who had lost their jobs, people who had been sick. And you quickly gave tens of thousands of dollars, just quickly. Here's, here's money, Grace. We want to make sure that you are providing for people in need. Very generous. When Brooks hurt his back and he asked the congregation for help, quickly the congregation responded. So we know that you are generous. It is obvious that you are a generous people. 
What God is calling us to here in James is to be generous daily. Don't wait for the church to ask you. Instead, know the people that live around you. Know the people that you come to church with. There are people in this church who come to this church who don't know necessarily where they're going to live from week to week. And there are people who have come, who have been so deeply in debt that they're afraid, right? They're fearful for what's going to happen to them and their family. Get to know those people. If they are your fellow brothers and sisters, then you are walking with them toward eternity and your goal is to work with them to bring others to Christ. And so take that generosity that you have already shown and live it with each other. He has given you that wealth to share. You don't even need to tell us that you're doing it. In fact, we don't even want to know. It doesn't have to come through the church at all. You can just share with one another. You can love each other that way. You can know God that way. But remember I said at the beginning that God wants to be our friend. Jesus says this. He says, and we'll get to this in a second, that I no longer call you I no longer call you servants. I'm calling you friends because I'm telling you what I'm doing. And so he doesn't want us to forget who he is. He wants us to know who he is. He wants us to be his friend. What does that mean? Remember I said this is a scary verse, James 4, 17, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it's sin. It's not scary if you're humble enough to know that you don't know. (laughs) It's not scary if you know that you need God. If you know that Jesus wants to be your friend and you're willing to be his friend, you're willing to sacrifice your pride and your arrogance, then you can know what's right. I read from Proverbs, or I'm sorry, I quoted Proverbs earlier. I'm going to read from it now because this is powerful. This is Proverbs 3, starting in verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Verse 6, verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And then verse 8, it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. A good friend is somebody who loves you and walks alongside of you and it doesn't matter what's going on in your life, they're there with you. The Bible even says that there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Somebody who, despite your your bonds with them through blood, they, they actually love you through every hard thing. And of course, Jesus is the best friend, right? He's the friend who lays down his life for us. So be humble enough to befriend God in this way, to choose to know him in this way, where you give him control, where he gets to decide, where you recognize you don't know what's best for you. That it's impossible for you to know what's best for you because you're a mist, you're a breath, you're here today and gone tomorrow. And so be humble enough to choose what is right because then it's not scary because then knowing the right thing is as easy as, as doing the right thing because God has given you that knowledge. And again, it's all throughout scripture. And if you have trouble reading this, come and talk to us. We want to help you read this, help you to understand this. Also, James 5, 6 can be a scary verse. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This will be true of us if we make wealth an idol. This will be true of us if we make those things that we think are valuable more important than God because we will sacrifice people for those things. You all know people. Perhaps you have been a person who has sacrificed a relationship for wealth. 
I'm going to work one more hour or two more hours or 10 more hours because I need the money and people be damned. I don't care what happens to those people because I need that money. You have known that. You've experienced that either personally or secondhand. You've seen it. That's what happens. We condemn and murder righteous people. They don't resist us when we are pursuing money as a God. So don't worship wealth. Don't allow that to destroy the righteousness uh, of you or others in your life. Instead, be dependent on God. And I'm going to turn to Matthew 6.19 here too, where Jesus talks about this. This is another picture of how James is very clearly quoting Jesus because James is using the same language, the same metaphors that Jesus uses. Matthew 6.19, Jesus says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break and steal. For there, uh, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So this is Jesus saying, uh, and he, he goes on to say, right, no one can serve two masters, which I already quoted. You can't serve both God and money. But Jesus is very clearly saying, if you are dependent on the Lord and on his provision, you'll have eternal treasure. If you're a breath, if you believe that, and again, this is written to believers. If you believe that, if you believe you have eternal life with Jesus, then why are you holding on to wealth now and here? What good is it going to do you eternally? It won't. Right? You've heard the expression, you can't take it with you. This is true. Right? This is truth. There is nothing that you can take with you. So why are you hanging on to it so tightly? There's no reason other than that you've made it an idol. So be dependent, be dependent on God. I said we get to this, this passage here where Jesus talks about us being friends. So let's spend a minute here because when we are confronted with this, it can make us feel awful. All of us have made plans that we have allowed to become idols in our lives. We have plans for ourselves. We have plans for our children, plans for our spouses, right? Anybody in here have a plan for their spouse that their spouse doesn't know about yet? We have plans for the people that we love, ourselves included. And many of them are good things, but they supersede God's plans. And many of us have a great attitude about money and that we think that we have our heads wrapped around what it means to be just a good manager of money, but it is becoming an idol in our heart. And so Jesus says, here's how you be my friend. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends Jesus says this to his disciples and then he goes and he does it, right? Then he gives up his life. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, that it should last so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. And that's the point. That's the purpose of all of this. This whole conversation that James is having with his fellow brothers and sisters. The reason he's writing to believers is because they need to love each other better. They need to take better care of one another because they are here on this earth. God has chosen them so that other people would see them and say, I want that. I also want to love my brother and my sister in that way because I don't right now and I have 
turmoil. I have unrest. I have pain. I don't want that. So how do I love people the way you love people? And you say, well, you have to love Jesus. You have to be willing to give him the things that you think are the most important, whether it is your plan for tomorrow or the $5 in your wallet or whatever it is. Be willing to give that up. And if you don't think you know what it is he wants, he has told you. And if you can't understand what it says in the Bible, just look at Jesus. What does it say right here in John? It says, listen, everything that the Father has told me, Jesus said, I have made known to you. And Jesus didn't write anything down. So how did he make it known? Well, he did talk and other people wrote it down. That's true. But he acted it out. The whole reason that we want to study the life of Jesus is because he is acting out the will of the Father. He's showing us with his life what it looks like to be in God's will. So he lays down his life for his friends. That's what it means. We can do a better job of that, Christians, of laying down our lives for our friends. Some of us will be called to do that actually, literally. And some of you know people who have been actually literally called to give up their life for their friends. But more commonly, here in America today in the 21st century, it just means not doing what you want so that you do what God wants instead. Just stop doing what you want and start doing what God wants and trust that the outcome is going to be better than the thing that you would have chosen. That's all Jesus is calling us to, that we would love each other as he loved us. And he's given us an amazing example. Um, I'm ending early this morning. We're going to talk about communion now. If you're an usher, uh, go ahead and stand up and go to the back. We're going to have communion. If you're in the praise team, feel free to come up, come down. The reason we're ending with communion is because we want to participate in this love. We want to participate in this letting go of our own understanding and trusting that Jesus knows something better. So what's going to happen here is the praise team is going to come up and they're going to sing a song and the usher team is going to come forward with the elements and they're going to pass those out. Take the time during this song to think about what Jesus is calling you to let go of. What in your pride and your arrogance you're holding on to, you're replacing God with, whether it's money or a plan or whatever else it might be.